You're listening to Canada's Court, the first podcast to highlight select oral hearings from the Supreme Court of Canada, presented by the Criminal Lawyers Association and available on all major podcast platforms. Visit podcast.criminallawyers.ca for more information. My name is Shweta Tejpal. I'm a criminal defense lawyer in the Greater Toronto Area with the Office of Kalina and Tejpal Professional Corporation. In this episode, we discuss the appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada, which originated from the Court Martial Appeal Court. Prior to the appeal being filed, multiple decisions came out by the military judges, which held that there is a lack of institutional independence because of their risk of prosecution under the military's code of service discipline. It leaves military judges at their risk of being influenced by a senior member of the Canadian Armed Forces. The separate role is a fundamental postulate of the rule of law. Therefore, judicial independence must not only exist in fact, but it must also be seen to exist to a reasonable person. The appellants are members of the Canadian Armed Forces who had various charges laid against them. The appeals focus on whether the role and status of military judges as military officers in the chain of command compromises their institutional independence, denying the appellants their right to a hearing under Section 11, Subsection D of the Charter. The question and issue before the Supreme Court of Canada was the following. Since Jeanneroux, do military judges deciding cases still raise a reasonable apprehension of bias? Two, has there been significant societal change which dissipates this court's concern that a trial before a military judge is a matter of practical necessity? Three, if so, does the military status of judges prescribed under the National Defense Act legislative scheme lead an informed person viewing the matter realistically and practically to conclude that there is an apprehension of bias contrary to Section 11, Subsection D of the Charter? Four, if so, is this a violation saved under Section 1 of the Charter? Five, if not, what is the appropriate constitutional remedy under Section 52 of the Constitution Act 1982? Bonjour, veuillez vous asseoir. Dans la cause euh, Matelot de première classe, C.D. Edwards et al. contre Sa Majesté le Roi, et entre Sergent Serpeau et al. contre Sa Majesté le Roi, and between Corporal K.L. Christmas against His Majesty the King, and between Lieutenant Navy C.A.I. Brown versus His Majesty the King, et entre Sergent A.G.R. Thibault contre Sa Majesté le Roi. Pour les appelants, matelots de première classe, C.D. Edwards et al., euh, Commander Marc Letourneau, euh, Lieutenant Commander Patrice Desbiens, et Major Francisca Ferguson. Pour l'intervenir, Canadian Civil Liberties Association, Zane Naki et David Ionis. 
for the intervener, British Columbia Civil Liberties Association, David McEwen, Greg Allen, and Chloe Trudel. Pour l'intimé, Sa Majesté le Roi, Colonel Dylan Kerr, Lieutenant Colonel, Colonel Carl Lacharité. Soyez avisés qu'il y a une ordonnance de non-publication émise par la Cour martiale du Canada, rendue en vertu de l'article 179 de la Loi sur la défense nationale et de l'article 486.4 du Code criminel. Monsieur Tourneau. Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. I will present my submissions in English uh, today, but I invite questions in either language uh, as you please. The context of this uh, issue today uh, is in the criminal military justice system. It deals, many of these appeals deal with uh, sexual assault matters and other matters as well. It is in this context that the judge's Canadian Forces status as a military officer who belongs to the Canadian Forces, a military officer who is subject to the Code of Service Discipline, to Canadian Forces Discipline, in this context, the judge's military status raises a reasonable apprehension of bias, that he will favor the disciplinary interests of the Canadian forces over the constitutional rights of the accused. And if, if they were not uh, subject to the code of service, uh, would it be sufficient to protect their independence? It would resolve part of the issue, but it would be insufficient, Chief Justice, as there is still a perception issue that the Canadian force judges act and are uh, uh, parties to their own uh, cause. You know, this, this reminds me of one of those cartoons where the, the figure is sitting on a branch working a saw between themselves and the trunk. So it seems to me that the, the logical uh, consequence of what you're saying is that the military judges are sawing off the limb on which they are sitting and saying that their institution should cease to exist as a matter of constitutional law. Uh, with, with respect, the issue before this court is only to determine whether the military status of military judges is inconsistent with Section 11D. There is no uh, challenge to the importance and the constitutionality of a parallel system of military justice. Mr. Letourneau, are you asking us, I just want to be clear, because uh, are you asking us to overturn Généreux? Because in your factum, when I read your factum, you are uh, taking advantage 
of many good things said in general. And on the other hand, uh, you say, oh, there were social uh, changes. So I want to know exactly, I know what uh, one of the interveners is asking us to overturn general, but what is your position on that? Yes, uh, we are asking this court to overturn Généreux on the conclusion that military status of judges is not inconsistent with Section 11D. So we're asking this court to evolve the law in, 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 to no, make the No, sir, law you are asking us to depart from precedent, and there is a very high threshold unless you consider precedent and stare decisis to be of no significance. But some of us do consider it to be fundamental to the rule of law. So putting aside a precedent and substituting a different view of the Constitution is a step which not only requires you to persuade us that as a matter of your argument here today, that it is superior to the argument of the other side, but that it meets one of the relevant criteria for departing from a precedent. And, 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 and I have to tell you, as a general proposition, that is like fighting uphill. And, and we, we concede that this is an uphill battle, but we say there are significant social and legal change that eroded the rationale in Genève. I bring this court's attention to our condensed book, Right before tab one, there's a table. This is the essence of the outline of argument. It's the table right before tab one. It's, a, it's basically uh, explaining, and we're following, uh, Justice Rowe, the framework that was set out in the dissenting opinion in Kirkpatrick recently uh, that was not uh, commented on by the majority, so there is, uh, and it is very instructive. So this is exactly the framework that, that we're engaged in right now. There is a precedent. We are arguing that there is new uh, societal facts. Uh, there's a new, le there are legal changes that justify departing from this rationale in general. Time has eroded the rationale in general. So I bring you to the table here where in Genève in 1992, uh, we were in a very command-centric, this is my first box here, command-centric disciplinary model. This was recognized as a matter of evolution, that since then we are today in a system that is a justice system, a parallel system. And so in Genève, the framework or the, the paradigm of this court was more uh, that, that courts martial were, were a akin to an administrative tribunal. The, the, the jurisdiction of courts martial at the time of, of, of uh, Genereux was very limited. So if I go to my box one here, there were no jurisdiction over sexual assaults. No jurisdiction at all unless military nexus. Sentences were decided by the panel. There were no jurisdiction beyond a three-year limitation period. So we were clearly in a disciplinary model uh, that was uh, very different from today, where we have today jurisdiction over sexual assault, unlimited time jurisdiction, uh, jurisdiction unlimited by military nexus. The sentence is decided by military judge. Today, this system, as this court recently said, is a full partner 
in administrating justice alongside the civilian justice system, a parallel system of justice that largely mirrors the civilian criminal system. Peter, can I can I stop you for a moment? Because when I look at the, this chart and when I read your factum, I understand that you've I understand your arguments that there has been a shift in some of the views, some of the uh, actual. Um, uh, social facts and in some of the views about whether this is the best model of military justice that we currently have. But that's not the issue before us. The issue before us is what precisely about this military model that we have in place, what precisely is it that would lead a reasonable person to believe that the military judges were not independent and impartial. The Chief Justice asked you if it would resolve the issue if they were not subject to the code of military justice. Is it the fact that the discipline process can go through the hierarchy? Um, but I'm just trying, because we're not engaged in what's ideal, what would be the best policy choice. We are just focused on what is it about the way this um, military justice system is, is designed that actually undermines Section 11D, the perception of, of someone who is facing jeopardy, that they won't have an independent um, impartial trial. So, so the con there's two constitutional defects. The first and fundamental defect is the fact, the simple fact that the judges are part of the organization. This in and of itself is inherently problematic. In general, that is what the preliminary questions, the question was about. Chief Justice Lamar, on his own volition, posed the question himself. Before embarking on the Valente analysis, he asked himself, is the very fact that there are members of this institution trying their own members, is that a problem? And, he said no. And he said no. And, and the reason, and this is why I'm here today, is to say why did he say no? But what, what was about, the rationale? What about the question, though, looking at for one of us, if we end up by getting charged criminally, we could be tried by one of our peers in Superior Court, for example. What's the difference? So, so this is a, a, good, a good question. I have the answer here. <laughs> Just before I, I finish, uh, the, to answer the, the, the question here on uh, military, uh, the military status, it, it's really an independent ground of appeal. And, and then I will go to the, uh, the second ground of appeal, which is about uh, the vulnerability of military judges to uh, the discipline by, by the chain of command. This is a separate, also independent ground of appeal. And I will explain how that is different, how a civilian judge's liability is woefully different than that of a civilian judge. Uh, but, but just to come back on, on this fundamental issue is, is, is if I can bring this court's attention to uh, the case of Genereux, which is at my uh, uh, tab three. And so it, the, the analysis begins at page 287 where the appellant in Genere concedes, it says, it concedes that a separate system of military law is, con 
uh, along with a distinct regime, is consistent with Section 7. He agrees it is necessary that military discipline be enforced effectively, speedily by members whose members are associated with the tribunal. And so this brings the first question, which is the fundamental first question in Geneva, which I am posing this court today, 31 years later, and saying the rationale why it was acceptable then is, has been eroded. Back then, and this is my, uh, I bring you back to the table, the, the fundamental rationale, which is different today, is that back then, practical necessity required military judges be military officers. That's, that's the big shift. Maître Letourneau, just I, before you go on to the detail of it, I'd like to just circle back to Justice Rowe's question to you. Because from a, obviously, it's, it's, uh, for us, we're worried about your case, but we're also worried about the case we're going to hear tomorrow and the case we're going to hear the next day and what do we do when people cite precedent. When I look through your condensed book at the paragraphs of just Chief Justice Lemaire's opinion that you underscore, that you underline. Later in the opinion, at pages 294 to 295, you insist on the paragraphs where he says, after having recognized that the parallel system of justice is possible, he says, however, I share the concerns, I'm at 294, expressed by Laskin, C.J., and McIntyre, J., and, Mac and McKay, where, he, where there were the kind of worries that you're speaking to now. Uh, he goes on a little later to cite James Fay, the article in, on um, Canadian military criminal law, where Professor Fay, uh, Fay or, or Mr. Fay, um, uh, says that there cannot ever be a truly independent judiciary. So going back to Justice Rowe's question, given that Justice Lemaire Chief Justice Lemaire was commenting on uh, a regime at the time and doing this kind of balancing of factors that we see in PET, that we see landed differently. Is it possible to say, well, we're not junking généreux. What we're saying is social circumstances have changed and thus the balancing is different. In other words, the precedent remains, the parallel, which you've, con you've said at the front end, parallel system of justice, you're not, you're not against that as a matter of principle in and of itself, um, but it's the factors that land differently on l'ipé, the, 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 the way in which you get there. So to, to the key point that Justice Rose, are you actually asking us to set aside a precedent or to reinterpret a precedent in light of changed social fact? Thank you for allowing me to make this precision. To be clear, we're asking this court to uh, revisit this particular question in Geneva in light of new facts. Uh, we're asking this court to follow the same logic as Geneva in terms of the framework, asking the preliminary question before jumping into the Valente criteria. So we're asking this court to ask itself, okay, is this military status an inherent judicial, pro, uh, judicial independence problem? And I'm asking this court, is the rationale here, which is at page 295 of the decision, still valid today? 
or at, in, in, which he, where he refers to uh, Mr. Fay's article and also to the, the, the McKay uh, precedent, which is uh, 1980, Mr. Fay 1975. At that time, this is the fundamental difference. At that time, it was unimaginable that a, that a military judge would not be an officer. It was simply not part of, the, of, the, of our conception. But since then, it, this, is, this assumption has proven to be false. At the time, it was a very reasonable assumption, but today it's a false assumption. And the, the, the facts, the social facts, or the changes that uh, you are asking us to consider to depart from the rational in general, uh, is the fact that civilian judges uh, are sitting in uh, military courts in other countries. countries. This is a good uh, indication that this is today uh, realistic and possible. It's in contrast with Genève three times citing McKay, which said, in McKay, says, from the earliest times, officers of all civilized countries have had this judicial function. It arose from practical necessity and must continue for the same reason. Today, this is completely false. In the UK, we have civilian judges who preside over courts martial. The system in the UK exists. There is a parallel military justice system in the UK. They're not cutting off the branch where the system no longer exists. But isn't that the contrary, the system is today stronger. Sorry. Isn't that a policy choice for Parliament, though? And all Parliament needs to have for the choice that it's made is a rational basis. So the fact that other jurisdictions now are having civilian uh, judges judge military matters broadly, more broadly than in, than in simply sexual assault matters, that, is a, that, that requires simply a rational basis for the policy choice. That doesn't, it isn't right or wrong. It's simply a preference of parliament. Um, <clears throat> it is not... Uh with respect, a policy choice. This was a question that this court on its own volition posed in Genève. It was not argued by either party. It is a constitutional law question. The test is whether a reasonable person, aware of the circumstances of reality, of practice, would consider... Uh, oh, I, still ag I agree. You still get to the Valenti test. But the actual premise for the system that we have, that is a policy choice. And then the question is, then the next question is, is the framework that's in place um, consistent with Valenti? And the respondent in their factum goes through Valenti and lists all the uh, provisions of the National Defense Act that they say actually are consistent with Valenti. My point is really your prior, you're, you're going to the very premise of the separate system and saying that no longer holds. Well, whether it does or, or not, it is a, the fact is that's the system we have. Parliament's reasons were Parliament's reasons. They preferred to have a separate system of military justice. And that simply has to have a rational basis. It doesn't need to be defended as being uh, objectively correct as a, as a policy choice. And, and I agree. Uh, we are not challenging the military justice as a separate parallel system. We agree with that. The only thing we're challenging here is the military status of the presiding judge. 
So can and I this needs you? to be rational. There needs to be a reason why we have uh, CF members preside court-martial. And today, in, in light of all the facts today, in light of all the evolution, it is no longer rational to say there's no other way. This was the reason why Jenner, had Jenner known, said, said differently, had Jenner known 31 years ago that courts martial were akin to criminal trials, which they weren't properly, it, it wasn't the same uh, expansive uh, system as today. But more importantly, had they known that it was not practically necessary to have a CF officer preside a, a court martial, they would have found a violation of Section 11D. So, I'm sorry, I just want to understand your answer to my question before. Um, you say that it's inherently problematic and, and you've got a separate independent ground about vulnerability to discipline. So what is it, apart from that secondary ground, what is it that's inherently problematic such that it meets the test that you just cited for 11D. What is it about it? Granted, you know, the system has changed since Jenneru, but that doesn't still answer the question. Yes. The question is, what is it about this system that you say is inherently problematic such that uh, a reasonable person would conclude it's not sufficiently independent? A judge must decline to preside over cases involving organizations to which they have close ties. This is a quote from the Canadian Judicial Council uh, pamphlet. Uh, they should avoid taking part in organizations that are routinely involved in legal actions. And so my, my, my answer is, as long as a military judge belongs to the very CAF institution, that lays charges against accused person, they will reasonably appear to be a judge in their own cause. Do we, do we find ourselves despite all the safeguards? Do we find ourselves coming around the corner and running into military nexus again? In the sense that if you pilfer stores, right, and, 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 and you're, you're the quartermaster and you sell food or something, well, you know, that's obviously an offense within the military framework, right? You've acted improperly. It's also theft under the criminal code. If you assault a superior officer, that's obviously subject to military discipline because you must maintain order and the command structure, etc., etc. But it's also common assault. So are you saying that uh, I'm struggling with this? You, you seem to be saying that if it's necessary to maintain military discipline, you can have military judges, but if it's almost a criminal code offense un, uh, unattached to the fact that this is a person is a member of the military, then you need to move outside the military system. Or have I missed your point? With respect, you have missed m my point. The point is that the military justice is not going anywhere. This is not the challenge. This military system will continue to operate. The only thing we are asking is to drop the rank 
of the military judge the and judge say it will be a civilianized military judge as is recommended in the Fish Report. So the judge should not be part of uh, the military. This is your point. This is my point. To have no affiliation with the CF. That's it. Everything stays the same. So the fact that the judge would be an officer but not subject because the Chief Justice asked you a question at the beginning, will, will it resolve the problem if the judge would not be subject to the code of service discipline? Uh, so the, 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 the judge can be an officer but not subject to the code. That's a, that's a, that's a potential avenue, but the, 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 the fundamental argument here is rather that the judge does not need to be an officer. There's no reason for that. And of course, if that's the case, then the second ground of appeal becomes moot. That's why I insist on, 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 on making sure this, this part is well uh, understood. But, well, speaking you. Oh, sorry. <clears throat> I just wanted to come back to my initial question that you haven't answered yet. I, I apologize. <laughs> so the question was, the example of I get charged and my peer, a fellow judge from the Superior Court, has to judge me. What's the issue? Okay. So this assumes, this question assumes that uh, military status is necessary and practically necessary for military judges to be military judges. So I will put that aside for now and answer your question directly. Unlike military judges, the executive cannot exert any disciplinary pressure on a civilian judge. Non-disciplinary liability is not an issue here. We're not talking about criminal liability. As the CMAC, the, the, the Court Martial Appeal Court, gave the example of drinking and driving or assault, this is not the point here. The point here is about the disciplinary uh, offenses to which military judges are subject to by the chain of command. But paragraph 92 in the court's decision says that there is no evidence that this has ever been an issue. So, the law, if it is unconstitutional, cannot be saved by the good faith of, uh, of the prosecutor uh, or the fact that this never, in fact, occurred. The law can be unconstitutional by its effects alone and by allowing this pressure, this executive pressure, to exist. So the law, and just to be clear, the law here is unconstitutional because it allows the discipline of judges without a judicial inquiry committee. Let, let me repeat that. The law allows for the discipline of judges without a judicial inquiry committee. And let me be more precise when I say discipline. What I mean is <clears throat> insubordination. Adopting a demeanor that is inconsistent with CAF requirements. This graceful conduct, being tardy to their place of duty. Civilian judges are nowhere near this type of pressure of, 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 uh, of pressure by uh, the executive. What's more is that since the adoption of Bill C-77, by summary hearing, military judges can be tried but let, let's by go, officers. Let's go back to, because Chief Justice Lemaire saw a lot of these problems. 
So I'm back at 295. My, my I guess it maybe even loops all the way back to the Chief Justice's first question. Uh, I'm, I'm left with the thought, well, maybe, maybe these civilian judges that you're thinking of who do this work would have to be former members of the military if they were, so they'd be in a position to understand a military discipline. I'm at the top of 295. So he's speaking to the, the fact that the members of the court-martial will also be at a higher, at or, at or higher in rank than captain. He says, their training is designed to ensure that they are sensitive to the need for discipline, obedience, and duty on the part of members of the military, and also the requirement for military efficiency. He says in the next sentence, inevitably this, this can cause a problem. But I still, he, he, he reasons, I come back to that because persons with this, avec cette formation, with this training, will understand exactly the kind of offenses you were alluding to a moment ago, insubordination and the like, in a way that a civilian person might not understand them in the same way, their importance in respect of the chain of command. And so I'm left with a thought well, if we're going to have civilian judges, perhaps we're reduced to choosing our civilian judges from retired members of the military, a bit, a bit like it's not enough for a military judge to have 10 years of membership at the bar. They also have to have a military qualification. Maybe you need a former mil- is that Is that your solution? How do, you, how do you... This is exactly the recommendation of Justice Fish in his report. But this is, at this point, a policy decision, I would submit. But it makes sense that a tax court judge of Canada would have experience in tax law. So exactly it's a, so this, exactly it's a policy decision. There may be different ways to skin a cat, but we've got one here. Is it really constitutionally invalid? The, the constitutional problem here is because there is still this affiliation with the Canadian forces it creates a reasonable apprehension of bias. Once you sever that affiliation, then there is no longer that reasonable apprehension of bias. So but I want old, to bring you... Oh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm just, just to finish my thought, and yeah, I'll let you ahead. have the... I'm sorry, I'm, I don't mean to speak too much. But, I mean, surely a former military person who on Tuesday nights goes to the Legion Hall to remember the good old days, maybe that person has the same kind of affliction that you speak of. I mean, these appearances, your past doesn't disappear. Your military past doesn't disappear. Why is that suddenly not, not a problem? Just that, that there, what, we, we, what we worry about is having military judges who understand the specific nature, the char- particular character of the work that needs to be done. Thank you. That, that is the inherent problem, part of it, is that this idea that the judge, a judge is a judge is a judge. He tries an accused charge with an offense and he will look at the essential elements of the offense based on the evidence that he has before him. A judge at its core protects individual constitutional rights of the accused, including the presumption of innocence. This is a mandate that is in conflict with the role of an officer of the military who has for first object and represents the chain of command. 
His object is mission success. It's Canada before self. These are different values, different interests that come into conflict. From the accused perspective, the judge in front of him belongs to the institution. There's an, appearance, there's an optical problem. The, the optical problem is so deep that even military judges, when they sit today, they do not wear their ranks and their uniform. They know that this creates an optical problem. But Mr. Letourneau, that rationale, because again, I'm going back to Généreux and to see if we can overturn Généreux or not. You're talking about some social changes, but in Généreux, that affiliation between the judge, the military judge, and the, the, the military system has been considered not a reason to say that uh, there was a violation of Section 11D. Chief Justice Lama has said that the existence of a parallel system for the purpose of enforcing discipline in the military is deeply entrenched in our history and is supported by the compelling principles discussed above. So the two social changes that you are referring to in your factum did not change that history. Or maybe I'm mistaken. Yes, uh, ex that's exactly the most important paragraph of the argument. This is the rationale. This is Jenner's rationale. He says, history, and since time immemorial, we have had officers do this, and so for practical necessity purposes, we need to do this again. The next paragraph is Fay. He says, there's no other way to do this. We need officers at all levels. This rationale is outdated. Today, this is no longer true. That's my point. If you replace the word necessary with desirable, given our history, does that change anything, though? It may not be necess necessary, as a matter of fact, because now, as you point out, the UK and New Zealand are counterexamples. But replace necessary with desirable, given our history. At this point, it becomes very close to... Um, um, it says it, it's almost like we're doing a section one argument here. And, and we're saying there's a societal interest in having, and, and if that's the case, then I, I, I would submit that there needs to be a rational, there needs to be a reason why it's, it's necessary to, or, or it's, 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 there's no, um, there's no upside is what I'm saying to a civilian judge. There's no upside. So even if, I were to agree with you that a civilian military judge would be desirable, preferable, whatever. That's not the legal test. So I'm going to ask you if we are not with you on your first ground. Mm -hmm. I see time is running out and I do want to hear from you on the second ground. Absolutely. What is it about the uh, being subject to disciplinary process through the chain of command precisely that creates the reasonable apprehension of bias, number one. Number two, is there, apart from this recent amendment in Bill 77 about the summary hearing, which is, uh, is an, an entire issue altogether, is there anything else in the act itself that would um, necessarily imply a disciplinary process for military judges through um, the chain of command? In other words, is it the way in which it's been interpreted and applied 
is the problem, or is there something specific in the act, apart from the military trial, that would be inconsistent with the view that perhaps there's an alternative through the um, inquiry committee to to deal with um, code offenses, service offenses? So there's I'm not no, sure. I, I, yes, I, no, I understand. Sorry, I, I thought I'd kind of try to bundle my questions for you. You can take them one at a time, Mike. Yes. So the National Defense Act permits discipline of judges by uh, the military chain of command. There is a specific person, the vice chief of defense staff has been designated as the person responsible for matters of discipline in relation to uh, military judges. And, And this is the way that the law has been interpreted. Uh, the case of uh, the, the chief military judge Zutzil is an example where this process was applied to a military judge. So there's nothing in the law that prevents that from happening. Now this is pressure, and it's pressure that is. Just to the- be clear, nothing prevents it. Is there anything that requires it to go through that process in the law? Well, there is a con- there's a concurrent jurisdiction with civilian uh, judges, so we can always go to the civilian courts. So you can go to the civilian courts, and you can also go to the complaints inquiry, the inquiry committee. Yes, the military judge uh, inquiry committee. Yeah. Uh, but there's also that possibility uh, that uh, it can go uh, through the system as any other any uh, any other case would. So so that's. That's exactly what happened in the case of military judge, Chief Military Judge Tutsil. He was dealt with uh, actually first in, before the Military Judges Inquiry Committee, and then his case went uh, to the court-martial. Now, this is different pressure from what civilian judges have. As I, as I was saying, the disciplinary and, and, the, and the concurrent, when I say concurrent jurisdiction of civilian courts, uh, obviously this probably is not... Um, so much applicable or so obviously applicable to these disciplinary offenses such as being tardy or having demeanor, improper demeanor uh, or offenses like that that are really purely disciplinary and that can be, they can be charged for these offenses and, and there's a, a big consequence, uh, a big impact on the administration of justice where we can see that the charge like that can have the the real effect of, of, uh, of uh, displacing a judge. So there is a threat to his uh, tenure. When, when you um, look at the, the judgment of the CMAC and you look at the arguments of your colleagues on the other side who point to judges having all the hallmarks of judicial independence, and we see, I'm thinking of the second error that that the CMAC identified or purported to identify in the, in the judgments in first instance. There's a list of paragraph 13 of the factors which militate in favor of a military judge's independence and impartiality. And, and it, it strikes me that they're, they're pretty compelling factors, but in any event that they're, they're going to go on to a, a balancing scale. But... Military judge can only be removed for cause. 
effect this uh, effectively as ensuring a security of tenure, same immunity from liability of the, as a judge of a superior court. Military judge, yes, can assign duties to the military judge, but the duties must be compatible with their judicial duties. Separate pay scheme. Um, uh, the, the rule, the specifics of the rule about holding office until removed from r- removed for cause or or um, voluntary released or retirement, um, separate scheme for grievances. Um, the the uh, CMAC adds the oath point that Justice Cote <laughs> raised a moment ago. Are these not? hallmarks of judicial independence, in, in which case, let's go back to what, where's the fatal flaw here that means that all of these things are for naught? And the, the, from, from the point of view, not just of what's, what you think might be a better scheme, but from the point of view of the Constitution of Canada, that we, are, we should be moved to declare this to be of no force and effect. Well, they, they're insufficient. They don't work. That's, that's the simple answer. They really, military judges remain, despite all these safeguards, they remain vulnerable to being disciplinary, uh, to, be, to being treated disciplinarily. Right, but there's a difference between uh, the what, deputy chief of the defense staff saying that your conduct was unbecoming that of an officer because you caused a shouting match over the port at the mess and you were going to lose your uh, mess privileges for a month and saying you're going to be disciplined because you're not imposing sufficiently high sentences. The first one seems to me isn't a problem. The second one is a very serious problem, but I'm not sure the second one exists. In all cases, I would submit a, milit- a, a judicial inquiry is required to, to impose discipline on a, on a judge. This system is not a second-rate system. We deal with sexual assault. I think we forget sometimes, and we treat this system as if it is a, an administrative tribunal, a professional tribunal of a self-regulated and self-governed profession. This is no longer, this is the Genève mindset. The new mindset, if uh, we uh, remember the recent uh, report of uh, Justice Arbeau says, self-regulation in the Canadian Armed Forces is harmful. We cannot assume, it seems that there is an assumption here, and I understand the conservative nature of, of law and its evolution, that we assume, as it did in Genève, that from times immemorial, this was the way it is. But today, the perceptions have changed. If we read in Fish, uh, the Fish report, the members of the Canadian forces, there is a confidence problem. The military status prejudices the appearance of justice. This matters not on a policy level, but on a constitutional level. It's not about policy. It's about the reasonable apprehension of bias test. And there is unnecessarily prejudice to the appearance of justice. Why? There is no upside. There is no upside to achieve, to, to uh, having a CF judge. It makes that it very difficult. isn't the upside. Just, I'm just going to interrupt you. Isn't the upside to have someone, like you have a specialized tribunal, 
who knows the system and the ins and outs of how things work. That's a great upside. For a non-criminal system, yes. But this is not a non-criminal system. This is a criminal system where, where, where the smallest detail, and I'm citing from, from Régie, which is a decision from this court which is about administrative law. In Régie, the standard applicable is the smallest detail capable of casting doubt on the judge's impartiality. And this is in my table. It's the middle box in my table. The smallest detail capable of casting doubt on the judge's impartiality will be cause for alarm. Belonging to the same organization looks really bad when you're trying someone for sexual assault. That has an impact not only on military members, but on complainants who are civilians, on society in general. When military judges speak, they speak on behalf of society. They don't speak solely on behalf of the Canadian forces. The system has greatly evolved since Jenner. In Jenner, this what I'm saying would be complete Chinese. But today we're in a different, completely different paradigm where this system is, in fact, a justice system and akin to a criminal justice system. There is no reason why our members should get second-rate justice, should get judges who are less impartial and less independent than civilians. There's no rationale, no longer. And so all I'm begging this court is to apply Jenner but with the new factual matrix, which now is clear. It's admitted by my friend, it's admitted by the Minister of National Defense that CF officers are no longer required to preside at court-martial. We are doing this for nothing. There is no, there is no upside to having a civilian judge, a, a, a CF judge in a criminal trial. Well, just to follow up on Justice Obonsuin's uh, question, when the CMAC says, and they say it several times at the beginning of their judgment and then later, paragraph 45, military justice in whatever form promotes the discipline, efficiency, and morale of the Canadian military for development of operationally ready and effective forces wherever they are deployed in the world, this mission, concept, and declaration of purpose is unknown to the civilian criminal justice system, they're wrong? You were, uh, I'm sorry, I uh, missed, this was from the CMAC decision? CMAC, paragraph 45. So, <clears throat> so contrary to what you've just said, that, that there's n no good reason, they give what they think is a good reason, and they say this mission concept and declaration of purpose, that is to say promoting discipline, efficiency, and morale, of the military for the development of operationally ready and effective forces wherever deployed in the world, which is, of course, not what we typically worry about in a, in a provincial criminal court or superior cr court in criminal matters. And they conclude this mission, concept, and declaration of purpose is unknown to the civilian criminal justice system. So your position is that is wrong. 
that, that is wrong. That is not realistic and practical. The new real reality and practice is completely the opposite. In the UK, they, they've done it for 10 years. The CDS, all the commanders of the military are confirming that this is completely wrong. There's no problem with deployment. People are running, and, 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 and it's not a matter of uh, maybe uh, we have experience from the UK and New Zealand that confirm, that confirm this, uh, this works. Not only that this works, but this, this works well. And, and I invite this court to, uh, to it's read. Just, it's different. It, it is different. I, I concede that. But is, does that make the, what we have today unconstitutional? I mean, that really is the problem. Because yeah. you know, we could go yeah. around the world in 80 days and find differences in criminal justice. Think of continental Europe, where it's, yeah. the criminal justice is quite unlike the criminal justice in the English tradition. But I, I'd be hard-pressed to say, well, because they do it over there like that, ours is unconstitutional. And, and that's not what we're saying. The reason why I'm referring to the UK or, or this new societal fact is because it undermines the rationale in Geneva. That's the reason. Because the, the rationale in Geneva is we can't do it any other way or it's not as practical or it's not as useful. This is no longer true. And so the reason why I refer to the UK or all these new social facts is not to say this is a great policy idea. This is not, an, this is really, I'm bringing back this court to the analysis in Genereux who, whose rationale is outdated. It is not a question of policy. It is a, a question of Section 11D and the reasonable apprehension of bias tests. And a reasonable person today knows what's going on in the UK. The reasonable person today knows that the CDS says, we can do this, no problem with civilian judges. This makes a difference to the Section 11D analysis. If I understand your point, and I'm, I think I'm understanding it more fully now, I would perhaps draw a parallel between Rodriguez and Carter. In Rodriguez, one of the concerns was whether you could put in place a made system, a assisted dying system, without exposing vulnerable people to uh, misuse of the system. And one of the facts which was placed before the court in Carter was that international experience indicated that such a system could operate effectively and without threat to vulnerable people. In that sense, I think I see a bit of a parallel here. You're saying it was assumed at the time of Genereux that a system constituted in the way that you're suggesting could not exist, and in fact you're saying that it is it not merely can exist, in fact it does and has been demonstrated in countries similar in nature to ours. That's exactly my point. It was based on a false assumption. Please, please apply Section 11D in light of the facts as they are today. That's all I'm asking. Not in light of a 1975 article or things that are clearly wrong today, such as saying that from time immemorial we could do it, or it was better to do it this way. It's no longer true. Our officers in the Canadian military say this is doable, there's no problem. And it's, so we're prejudicing the appearance of justice for no reason. 
Um, and to answer your question, Justice Rowe, on Kirk, in Kirkpatrick, there is a part on uh, foreign jurisprudence, and I think it's applicable here only to say, not to say we should do this because they're, they're so much better, or, or it's, but only to say this is going to work, not an issue. We know the UK example is, is outstanding, and it's very telling, so there's really no risk. There's no downside the only downside in this whole equation is that the accused feels and optically sees a judge who belongs to the organization who charged them. That's a big downside in a criminal justice system. If we were in a professional tribunal, no problem. Specialization, members tried by members, makes sense in an administrative uh, context. But in a criminal trial, the smallest detail, I repeat, the smallest detail capable of raising doubt in the judge's impartiality is cause for great alarm. Our soldiers are not second-rate citizens. They go in the same prisons as the civilians after they, they serve the same time. It's same. Their liberty is at stake just the same. Um, I would turn to the second point. I, I'm going from the first to the second. I'm back to the second point, which is about the pressure. When we analyze the pressure that military judges undergo by the government, we need to take into account the context. The context that these judges are not part of a permanent court. They are part of ad hoc tribunals of military courts, and they, um, they depend on uh, the DND, CAF, for approval of their travel. Their rules of practice have not been updated until 2000, since 2018. So they're in the DND world, even uh, impacted uh, in, in their judicial function by, uh, by this uh, embeddedment with, with DND. Um, and so given that context, the executive pressure is, un, is, is, is serious. In Lipe, and that's a, that's a point where the CIMAC did not address at all, never referred to the case of Lipe, which clearly sets out that legislation, this is tab 21, I think it's, a, it's worth just to get... 21, page 138. The facts of this case raise no independence problem because the Barreau du Québec has no authority over the municipal court judge in his or her capacity as judge. This is discipline, right? This, we're in, the, we're in this, this state of mind. If However, if legislation provided for the discipline of municipal court judges by the Barreau du Québec, such provisions would raise problems of independence. This is precisely our situations. Our military judges are subject to the code of service, service discipline 24-7. They are regular force military officers subject to this code at all times in every part of their life. You've spent, we've spent a lot of time on Genera, but what about Stillman? Because obviously in Stillman um, 2019, in paragraph 36, there's a recognition that uh, breaches of military discipline must be dealt with speedily and frequently punished more severely than would be the case uh, if a civilian engaged in such conduct. 
That's another rationale. Um, uh, an offence in the military context is, can be quite different. And again, a judge who understands that context um, may be uh, more sensitive to the factors that would be appropriate for sentencing. So I guess there's a two-part question. One is, um, General has sort of been, the rationale in General was given new life in 2019, but then additional rationale that uh, uh, was cited in General, but then affirmed in, in Stillman. So in, in uh, Stillman, I'd like to bring the court to uh, Stillman, which is uh, the first tab. At paragraph 86, this court specifically leaves the door open for 11D issues. We underline at this point that we would not foreclose the possibility of challenging certain aspects of the military panel system. So, of course, we're distinguishable on that factor alone, but also particularly in relation to their composition and their independence from the chain of command under provisions of the Charter, namely Section 11D. This is a different question put to us. So uh, this case, the outcome of this case, if the appeal is granted, would not be inconsistent with Stillman. Um, and, and more fundamentally, to answer your question, again, uh, the needs of the military justice, the needs of the Canadian forces for discipline, moral efficiency are all understood. And they all remain. And this, the legitimacy of this parallel system is not attacked or undermined in any way by simply removing the rank of the military judge. I'd like to ask uh, about whether this is a truly institutional problem which would impugn the act, or whether this is a case-by-case -case problem. You raised earlier the problem of a, of a judge whose, whose past life puts them in conflict with maybe one of the parties and who would then, as an individual, recuse themselves for doing it. Justice Cote earlier raised the, the serment d'office, the oath of office, and if, if, which is, of course, in the NDA, and it says that uh, the, the military judge must swear that they solemnly and sincerely promise to impartially, honestly, and faithfully in the best of their skill ex execute the powers reposed in them. Um, if they feel, because of this pressure you allude to, that they can't do that, they can't, they can't acquit those functions, well, they recuse themselves. But S, it, it, could we not do this on a case, that's the suggestion of CMAC, that, that this oath allows this to proceed on an individualized basis without throwing the baby out with the bathwater. The system could stay. The judges who feel the, the untoward pressure you speak to could distance themselves from the case. Others could go on with the advantages, the advantages of that, that Chief Justice Lemaire speaks of for military justice? So, so first of all, it's not a question of whether the, the system will stay. The system will stay. I, I think that needs to be very clear. The system will stay. The only thing that the appellants are asking if, is for 
the military judge to be no longer affiliated with the Canadian forces. That's it. Nothing else changes. The system remains the same. And so the purpose of the system, which is where I'm coming to, which is to maintain discipline, efficiency, and morale, can still be maintained with rapidity, deployability, and expertise. There is no, nothing preventing the government from appointing judges who have military experience or military legal uh, law knowledge as they do for the, Can- the, the, the tax court of Canada. It's simply, a, 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 what, what, what's happening today is simply a push to evolve the system to make it stronger. It's not to destroy it. Recusal, you're not, you're not addressing that. And about the individual recusal, yes. In a criminal context, I repeat, the smallest detail is cause for alarm. And so is ca- smallest, the smallest, um, I'll, I'll read it because it's a very important quote. This, uh, In criminal trials, the smallest detail capable of casting doubt on the judge's impartiality will be cause for alarm whereas greater flexibility must be shown towards administrative tribunals. So here, the doubt that I'm referring to in the accused mind is the fact that the judge is involved, is, produ- is presiding over cases involving the Canadian forces. Yeah, but you presume that the judge is not going to respect his oath of office. Because if I swore that uh, I was sworn that I would... Uh decide each case with impartiality and all of that. Uh, so to come back to the example given by Justice Cazera, if a judge is under pressure uh, from the organization, then that judge has the possibility to recuse himself or herself. Yes. It's a question of optics. It's a question of perception from the perception of the accused person. Right. So, so does it really matter what pressure they actually feel? I mean, we keep talking about how they actually feel, but what's the relevance of that? Well, the relevance is that there's the possibility of pressure. The act increases that and, and, and makes it possible for the chain of command to exert pressure on them. Because the judge, and that's something that the accused would have a doubt in their mind. Absolutely. Not the pressure that the judge may Especially given the fact that all judges who have heard these cases have said... This is, not a, this is not a small thing. All judges who have heard this case, in many instances, they all say that they are vulnerable to the pressures of being disciplined by the chain of command. Unfortunately, oh, your time is up. Uh, donc, est-ce que, avec votre permission, peut-être 30 secondes pour... Uh, 30. 30 secondes. <laughs> so... No rationale to deny truly independent military judiciary. No downside to having military, civilian military judges. No upside to keeping judges part of the CF. In practice, it only serves to create grave perception issues surrounding the executive status of military judges today. In reality, military judges are no different than civilian judges as it pertains to the day-to-day activity. And so in 2023, public confidence, because there is a public confidence crisis, and I haven't had time to to mention it, but it's it's admitted, 
in the military justice system can no longer rest on outdated model of disciplinary tribunals of a self-governing provision. It now requires no less than judicial independence, military judges that have, and this is all we're asking, military judges that have no CF affiliation and no vulnerability to CF discipline. Our soldiers are not second-class citizens. Thank you very much. Merci beaucoup. Zain Naki. Good morning, Chief Justices. Good morning, Justices. The Canadian Civil Liberties Association offers two submissions this morning on the separation of powers as a fundamental prerequisite to the rule of law in our constitutional democracy. And I, I begin with the submission that this court has repeatedly held that the separation of powers is a first order principle in our constitutional architecture. And this uh, is highlighted in Chief Justice Lemaire's decision in the provincial court judge's reference, where he said, the institutional independence of the courts is inextricably bound up with the separation of powers. And that separation requires that the relationship between judiciary and executive must be of a particular character, such that the executive cannot and cannot appear to exert pressure on the judiciary. And in Mackin, this court said much the same thing, that judges must remain as far as possible sheltered from pressure and interference from all sources. The role of the judge requires that he or she be completely independent of any other entity in the performance of his or her judicial functions, and the nature of the relationship between a court and others must be marked by a form of intellectual separation that allows the judge to render decisions based solely on the requirements of law and justice. The separation of powers, justices, is not an ideal. It's not an aspiration. It is a fundamental postulate of our system of government. And that takes me to my second submission, justices, which is that the CCLA does not take a position on this appeal on the constitutionality of a separate system of military justice. But regardless of the outcome of these appeals, the CCLA asks this court to deliver a clear, unequivocal affirmation of the separation of powers. And that request, Justices, comes by way of a caution to paragraphs 67 to 75 of the Edwards decision, which we ask respectfully that this court not adopt in its reasons. The Edwards decision emphasizes in those paragraphs overlap between executive and judicial roles in our Westminster system of government, which it says should inform the way that a reasonable person would look at the dual role of military judges. And the CMAC offers a number of what we say are decontextualized examples of members of the judicial branch performing executive functions. Those examples being commissions of inquiry, federal court judges sitting 
on federal boards and tribunals and the Canadian Judicial Council disciplinary regime. And respectfully, Justices, these examples don't assist your task. The fact that commissions, tribunals, and councils happen to be within the executive branch of government does not tell us anything about the character of the relationship that must be maintained between executive and judiciary. And while the competition tribunal, as one example that's given in the reasons, is a creature of the executive, a reasonable and informed person would not countenance executive interference or executive influence with its decision-making processes. What these examples do show, Justices, is that we protect the institutional independence of judges, not only when they sit as judges. We strive to protect them in all circumstances against actual or perceived encroachments on their independence. Mr. Naki, you can't, you, can't wear two, you can't wear two hats in life. Our, our Chief Justice was Administrator of Canada for a period. That was one example cited that you didn't rehearse. Uh, you seem to be able to wear two hats through that period. Is that not possible in the context that, uh, of this appeal? You, you, you can wear two hats, Justice Kassir. That's That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is even when the Chief Justice is wearing the other hat as Administrator of Canada, it must be understood and must be seen by the public that the Chief Justice is maintaining his independence and impartiality. So in the example that I, I gave you on the... Uh, on the tribunals, if a judge is sitting as a member of a tribunal, we don't question that that judge has independence and impartiality because the institutional structure of the way that the tribunal is set up protects against any such encroachment. And so my my point, Justice, is, is that the question is not whether executive or judicial roles can coexist or whether a judicial officer can maintain independence as a judge while exercising another role. The inquiry should be geared at the degree to which executive influence or interference can be brought to bear on judges to the detriment of their independence. All right. Th- that's the question. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chief Justice. Mr. David McEwen. Chief Justice, Justices. The British Columbia Civil Liberties Association takes the position that the interpretive approach adopted by this court in Genereau is inconsistent with the purposive interpretation principles that govern how the rights and guarantees set out in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms are to be interpreted. This court now has the opportunity to bring in line the interpretation of Section 11D of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms into the same manner as all other charter rights. To put this another way, the interpretive exercise undertaken in Genero is an outlier to this court's otherwise consistent interpretive approach. Since the foundational judgment of this court in Big M Drug Mart, Okay, so the methodology of dealing with Section 1 was changed. Let's say the Oaks test is replaced by another test. Does that 
undermine every single decision taken relying on the Oaks test, right? Or if the scope of ascertaining a right which has been guided by Big M Drug Mart, that there's, there's a further refinement to that. Does that mean that every single decision taken relying upon Big M Drug Mart is thereby cast into question? That's a difficult question, Justice Rowe. I, the short answer is that it would depend on the nature of the change to the Oaks test. It's a bit difficult to consider that in a vacuum, but taking your point, which is when and can the court depart from its own precedence, it would always be a discretionary decision uh, that the court would have. We say that the Genereau approach fails we said the general approach is inconsistent with Big M drug market and the cases have followed for three principal reasons. First, the general approach, which uses the wording of Section 11F, which pertains to offenses under military law tried before military tribunals, is not consistent with the plain wording of the Section 11D guarantee itself. Section 11D is unqualified. It contains no exception or limitation on a person's right to an independent and impartial tribunal. And specifically, it contains no limiting language that differentiates the content of that right in the context of a military tribunal. There is also no indication, on the plain words of the Charter, that the qualification in Section 11F of the Charter was meant to broadly inform all of the other Charter rights set out in Section 11 as a whole. The right to an independent and impartial tribunal is is an ancient one. It is not unreasonable in these circumstances to expect that a limitation of such a fundamental right would have been clearly expressed within the Charter itself. Second, in general, the court was concerned about the practical necessity of having members of the military serve on tribunals given the unique role of the military. The concern about these practical necessities was then used to justify an internal limitation on Section 11D, by interpreting it by reference to the specific limiting language in Section 11F. Now, it's not disputed that the courts may look to other charter provisions when assessing the purpose of the charter right as a whole, but there's a difference between context and limitation. What is objectionable here is using the specific language contained in one right, Section 11F, to internally limit the content of another, Section 11D, on the basis of, among other things, practical considerations, such as the distinct nature of military law. Those considerations are more properly considered in a Section 1 analysis. The general approach obviates the need for that analysis under Section 1 of the Charter, and there's no need to do this. The practical considerations discussed in general are analogous, broadly speaking, to goals of fundamental importance, goals of which are constantly considered in the context of an Oaks analysis. Under the Oaks test, the court will be in a position to assess the proper balancing of the interests of the parties and the deleterious and salutary effects of allowing military officers to serve at a judicial function. And more importantly, it's the state that bears the onus of justifying any such restriction. Finally, and briefly, it must be noted that the general approach results in a meaningful deprivation of procedural rights for Canadians. Military tribunals can and do impose lengthy sentences of incarceration, the harshest penalty known to our law. 
It is precisely in these circumstances that an individual is entitled to the highest procedural protection. The general approach to Section 11D falls short of this exacting standard. Failing anything from the bench, those are my submissions. Thank you. Thank you very much. The Court will take its uh, morning break, 15 minutes. Chief Justice, Justices, good morning. My uh, outline of my oral submissions is available at tab one of our condensed book, and I will use our time to advance two points. First, that the status of military judges as officers of the Canadian Armed Forces does not in and of itself violate Section 11D of the Charter. And second, that military judges have all of the hallmarks of judicial independence. As was noted this morning uh, by Justice Karakasanis and Justice Jamal, uh, I believe it's important to state at the outset that this appeal is about constitutional requirements and not about policy development. The question before the court is not whether Canada should civilianize its military judiciary, nor is it about the advantages or disadvantages of doing so. Those questions are ultimately for Parliament. The question before this court is whether the court's martial as they were constituted at the time of the appellant's trials, met the minimum guarantees of independence and impartiality required by the Charter. Eight unanimous decisions of the Court Martial Appeal Court have answered that question correctly when they concluded that an informed person, viewing the matter realistically and practically, and having thought the matter through, could reach no other conclusion than military judges meet the minimum constitutional norms of impartiality and independence required by Section 11D of the Charter. This appeal demonstrates a continued tension between two very different views of military justice. One, advanced yet again by the appellants in their submissions and alluded to by the interveners, views the military justice system as a derogatory system of justice that is presumptively unconstitutional and whose existence must be justified at every turn on the principle of necessity. I don't, think, uh, I don't think the uh, submission this morning, at least I didn't take it as being somehow derogatory, but what about the argument, which is, I think, a serious argument, that the very premise of uh, Genereau uh, stated at paragraph 280, uh, page 287, this idea that it's necessary that military discipline be enforced effectively and speedily by tribunals whose members are associated with the military, that that fundamental premise of necessity times have changed and we now have we can now conceptualize we're better aware of the problems of military justice administered by military officers we're better aware of other jurisdictions there's been no instance of uh, justice in the field in the in the field of combat what do we make to make of all those new social facts so I, justice Jamal I would start by saying it's it's the interpretation of Chief Justice Lemaire's remarks of practical necessity as being a fundamental premise underpinning the decision. That, that is why I describe their approach as a derogatory one, because it, it starts with the basis of unconstitutionality and immediately attempts to justify it by necessity. This, in our view, is not what Chief Justice Lemaire was doing at all uh, in, in the general court. Uh, he was merely reviewing the historic context that describes why we have military judges. Uh, in the relevant sections of gender, Chief Justice Lemaire was addressing that preliminary issue of whether a parallel system of military tribunals staffed with military officers who are aware of and sensitive to military concerns is by its very nature inconsistent. 
And that discussion of practical necessity simply puts his analysis in its proper historical context. He was not saving an unconstitutional system. In fact, he was very clear that there was no breach of uh, Section 11D, and he, uh, um, Justice Kassira referred uh, to that portion of the general decision at page uh, 295, which we've included in our condensed book at tab 2. And I will just go a little further uh, to, the, to the second paragraph uh, from what was discussed before, where Chief Justice Lemaire concludes after a review of the analysis about military judges' status as military officers, and, and he says, this in itself is not sufficient to constitute a violation of Section 11D of the Charter. So it, it's very clear from Chief Justice Lemaire's uh, decision that, that he perceived no actual breach of 11D. This was not a saving on a principle of necessity. So one of the criticisms that we heard, we heard it alluded to by the, one of the interveners about Généreux is the emphasis on the flexibility, uh, the suggestion that uh, the military military setting is one in which flexibility is necessary, and consequently that should be taken into account when we're measuring um, independence. Is that a a good argument today? Is that argument hold today? Flexibility suggests that, say, for uh, an administrative tribunal, that there would be a lower standard of independence. Um, Is it fair in a setting where, in the military context, the criminal criminal, uh, jeopardy facing an accused, the uh, fact that they're going to, as uh, they're going to find themselves as Pet uh, emphasized, in a penitentiary with ordinary criminals, maybe flexibility un- is not uh, an open door to a lower standard of uh, judicial independence or even a different one at all. W- what are your thoughts on that? Is that something that's been eclipsed in just Chief Justice Lemaire's thinking? No, I, I, I would say that when we look at the flexibility uh, talked about by not just Chief Justice Lemaire, but in fact, uh, unanimously by that court. And in, in general, uh, I think it's important to understand we have a, a five-member majority uh, opinion, a three-member concurring opinion, and a, and a one-member dissent. The, the things that they dissented on were the amount of flexibility uh, uh, proper for that analysis. The five-member uh, decision applies the Valenti framework the three-member concurring uh, opinion would have adopted an even more flexible standard, uh, while Justice Larude Bay, speaking on, on, in her own dissent, uh, would have concluded that there had been no violation of 11D for the aspects of the general court-martial that the majority in concurring decisions... Uh, Although she did found. say, in fairness to her, and you're right to say she was in dissent, that she felt that in some circumstances flexibility is ill-tailored to performing the same analysis for a general court-martial. So, so it wasn't quite a, a, a single narrative across the, across the Yes, and I think that's very fair, uh, Justice Kassira. The, the, the point, in our view, is that flexibility in, uh, in the way that the analysis was done in general was, was really more appropriately called 
contextualization, that you have to understand the context of the tribunal uh, in which uh, the framework is being applied to. Uh, but it is also very clear it, that Genero did go on to apply the Valenti framework and that the requirements of 11D are equally applicable to a general court-martial as they are to a criminal trial. So you would, when, when Pet, uh, paragraph 149 says, um, speaking of, of this kind of issue, says that um, a, a person should not be ordered to a penitentiary by a judge offering less than any judge in terms of impartiality and independence. The, the, the less than, the, the flexibility opens the door to a lesser form of independence. You would say that that's not a worry. Uh, absolutely, it is not a worry. The, the issue is whether the court-martial, as it's constituted, meets the minimum constitutional requirements under 11D. And we take no issue with that and say, of course, that must uh, continue uh, to be the approach. Uh, our argument is that when that proper framework is applied to the court-martial, one will come to no other conclusion that military judges have the sufficient independence guaranteed under 11D. And we say that uh, because they share all of the hallmarks of judicial independence required by 11D. Uh, my friends talk uh, a lot about the, the changes to the system, the growth and evolution, uh, but some of those key changes are the continued strengthening of the judicial independence of the military judges uh, from Genero. Uh, and uh, that was what this court noted in Stillman. In fact, in Stillman, uh, the court dedicated many paragraphs to uh, reviewing the development of the military justice system. We've included those paragraphs at tab three of uh, our condensed book of authorities. I, I, I would like to refer the court to two of those paragraphs. Uh, the first is paragraph 44, where the court said, judicial uh, jurisprudential developments included the 1992 constitutional challenge in Genero to parts of the pre-1990 regime. The appellant in that case argued that a general court-martial under the pre-1990 regime was not an independent and impartial tribunal within the meaning of Section 11D of the Charter. Lemaire C.J. confirmed that the military justice system, like its civilian counterpart, must comply with the Charter, although this does not require that the two systems be identical in every aspect. He further held that the military justice system is not, by its very nature, as a parallel system staffed by members of the military who are aware of and sensitive to military concerns, inconsistent with Section 11F. And then two pages later, at paragraph 48, the court says, in response to Genereau and the reports outlined above, Parliament introduced Bill C-25, an act to amend the National Defense Act and make consequential amendments to other acts. Bill C-25 brought about the most extensive set of amendments to the National Defense Act since its inception. And then it goes on to list a, a number of those amendments, and I, I've highlighted two that res, uh, relate to military judges. The first, it provided a statutory basis for independent military judges in terms of tenure, remuneration, and removal only through an inquiry committee process. And then on the following page, it shifted responsibility for the determination of sentence from the panel of military members to the military judge presiding over a court-martial. As Mr. Letourneau said, uh, when he read to us uh, paragraph 86 of the same decision in Stillman, uh, where the court said that uh, what was said before 
should not foreclose the possibility of challenging certain aspects of the military panel system, and this is the, the aspect they are challenging this morning. Yes, and I would say, Justice Cote, that that's exactly the right approach. Uh, Chief Justice Lemaire outlines the correct framework uh, in, in general, which is after having concluded that there is no inherent 11D problem with military judges being military officers, uh, that you must then go on to conduct a proper analysis. And that proper analysis is to the same today as Chief Justice Lemaire concluded in general. That is, one must examine whether military judges enjoy, within the current regime, the protections necessary for judicial independence. The discipline of military judges under the Code of Service Discipline, uh, with uh, what Chief Justice Lemaire said in Lippe, and in Lippe he said that if the legislation provided for the discipline of municipal court judges by the Barreau du Québec, such provisions would raise a problem of judicial independence. So I, there's, we've always had a struggle when we speak about the military justice system when we talk about the word discipline because the military has long used the word discipline to incorporate the code of service discipline in its entirety. So uh, to the extent that we're talking about discipline within the military system, the court should understand that as a criminal or quasi-criminal system. We're talking about uh, offenses that carry with them uh, penal consequences in a court structure designed to hear those cases in a way similar, although not identical, to the criminal justice system. So th this is not a case of a, uh, a professional uh, disciplinary regime uh, uh, geared towards the discipline of military judges and their military function. This is a description of the application of the code of service discipline, the military law, to military serving members, and it must be understood in that context. I'm not sure I understand what you just said. If, it's, if we're talking about service offenses that are criminal in nature, then clearly they, they, can, they can be charged with crime in the civilian courts, or you would go through the um, military justice inquiry committee if we're talking about crimes. So I, I'm just not understanding the distinction you're drawing between discipline for service offenses that are not crimes and uh, discipline for what could clearly be dealt with through the criminal justice system or through the, um, the disciplinary, the inquiry committee process? Uh, yes. So, uh, and there, I, I'll try and address three separate uh, aspects of your question, Justice Karakasanis. The first is uh, I, I say I refer to the uh, military justice system as being criminal in nature because uh, service offenses uh, are, are charged on a criminal standard and are tried in court on, uh, based on criminal law principles as opposed to a dis disciplinary regime that it, it is administrative law in nature. It, the code of service discipline operates in a way that is akin to the criminal law and not akin to an administrative professional regulatory body. That, that's my first uh, uh, point with respect to that. Uh, I would like to address, though, the, the aspect of the Judicial Inquiry Committee, because uh, as Chief Justice Bell noted in Edwards at the, at the CMAC, that the Military just Judicial Inquiry Committee does not perform a disciplinary function. It, it, it does one thing and one thing only, which is to review allegations of misconduct to recommend removal or not 
uh, to the so minister. it doesn't make findings of misconduct? It doesn't make any findings? It doesn't in any way have a record or a reprimand that's on the file? There's, it serves no value other than to make a recommendation? I would certainly not characterize it as no value. That, that, there is great value there. So, yes, it does make findings. It certainly makes findings in, in respect of its recommendations. But it has no disciplinary power. It cannot impose itself sanctions uh, against a judge. Its, its only recourse is a recommendation for removal. Does, does it not parallel uh, the disciplinary function of the CJC? It, it does in large part, uh, but its powers are, are uh, a little bit more limited. Its powers are limited? Yes, in that it can, again, it, its only recourse after uh, hearing allegations is to make recommendations or not on removal. CJC well, is the yeah. power of recommendation only? I. That, I that may be the, I may be incorrect <laughs> in that. I, 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 I was under the, and I, my understanding may be uh, well, been uh, incorrect on this point, but, but I thought that this, the CJC. <laughs> I had a few other uh, remedies available to it, well, but I could very well be. To be, to be uh, accurate, because there were some amendments to the mm -hmm. legislation recently, there are more remedies than before. Before there was only recommendations, mm -hmm. but now there are other remedies. But that's another... Uh, mm. Colonel Coe, we're just dealing with military judges today, but presumably if the appellant's arguments are uh, endorsed, there would be sort of spillover effects for the whole system of military justice, including military prosecutors and defense counsel, presumably, because you're also under uh, a, a hierarchy of command. And I guess those comments, those concerns were also expressed by Justice Fish in the Fish Report, um, saying that the same concerns he had with military judges apply to. So I guess, um, well, we're only dealing with judges today. It does seem to me that the consequences would be broader and would have repercussions to the whole system of military justice. Is that, is that fair? Uh, no, I, I don't think it is fair because, and, and this goes back to the reason why a contextualized review of independence is, is extraordinarily important. One must look at the regime as a whole and all of the safeguards in place. And in fact, there are many safeguards to protect military judges in their judicial function and other safeguards, different safeguards, for instance, for the independence of the director of military prosecutions, the independence of defense counsel services. Uh, each of us have our own safeguards and understanding that uh, our independence is not, not the issue uh, but if the, today. Uh, but if the, the principal argument or the first argument of your friend uh, Monsieur Le Tourneau, uh, were to prevail, uh, the connection with the chain of command, it seems to me, picking up on Justice Jamal, would, you know, the taint, the problem that arises, would, it seems to me, be equally applicable to the prosecutorial service, which has to be uh, insulated from uh, direction by the executive, and the independence of the bar, which is absolutely fundamental to our, uh, in defense bar, fundamental to our system as well. So it's kind of like you take it all down or you leave it all up. Well, I would agree with that, Justice Rowe. If there is, if there is in fact, a, a real issue, uh, then, uh, then 
Yes, the door is open for a removal of the entire system. Of course, it's our position that there isn't a real issue. And when you look carefully at the safeguards in place, uh, the, the specter of interference by the, the executive uh, suggested uh, by my friend simply does yeah. not exist. I mean, so we're going far afield from 11D here. But um, let me ask you this. I'm, I'm interested in the security of tenure. Um, a military judge can only be removed after recommend inquiry, committee, recommendation. What if there's a court-martial and they're discharged? Uh, if, there were, if, for instance, they were... Or they're stripped of their officer status. I presume that's one of the remedies that would be open to a court-martial. What if there is a court-martial and they are stripped of their officer status? Is that a remedy, and would that be a runaround, the security of tenure? Uh, well, difficult, of course, to do a legal analysis on, on, on aspects that are, that are not before the court. What I would say, though, is that... Security of tenure is before the court. Yes. So To add to it, the requirement that a military judge have 10 years of standing at the bar of the province and 10 years as a, an officer would be impugned by the example that that Justice Karakatsanis gives, that they would have lost one of their qualifications, and thus that's exactly her point. So it, I, and this provision of the NDA is cited by the, uh, the CMAC. So, so I think it is a very much a live question. So I, I, I'll, I'll walk the court through the regime as it exists right now. So for, for starters, there is no uh, sentencing provision that would uh, remove a, a, a member's commission. So a court cannot sentence you to uh, lose your commission as an officer. So that's the, the first point. A discharge then? The court could issue as a sentence a dismissal from the forces either with or without disgrace. Where a court-martial does issue a sentence of dismissal, there is still then a follow-on administrative process that, re that, that is required to be performed to actually remove a member from the forces. That's where the conflict would arise. If a court purported to sentence a military judge to dismissal, that sentence would be impossible to carry out because the statutory regime would prevent the administrative process of the Canadian Armed Forces from removing uh, the military judge. So it would seem to be a sentence that, although a, a, a court-martial would seem to have the power, would be inconsistent with and violate safeguards for, for judicial independence. Uh, I'm, okay. I'm, uh, so you're saying technically it could be done, but it can't be done because of the Military Justice Inquiry Committee route. I, I gather that's what you're saying. That's correct. Well, why we wouldn't the same argument apply then to discipline? other forms of discipline. Well, because there's no, in, there's no inherent conflict in, that, in, in the act. Well, if you look at it the way the military uh, judges did, they interpreted the act in a way that clearly the armed forces doesn't agree with. But they, their interpretation was because they're judges, because they are doing judicial duties, and because there is a process akin to the Canadian Judicial Council process for discipline, uh, for recommendation. Therefore, it makes sense that they not be subject to, you know, a command, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the discipline by the, by the military command. Well, this is where I come back to my point about discipline being understood in the military justice system 
as akin to the criminal law. And this is why I say that, that the military judges being subject to the code of service discipline is no different than judges across Canada being subject to the criminal law. If you want to draw the analogy, though, in those cases, judges across the country can be charged with an offense in the, in the courts, the civil courts, or there can be a complaint to the Canadian Judicial Council. And I guess the argument that is being put to us at the secondary ground is those two routes would be equally available in respect of any misconduct of a military judge. You can charge them in a civilian court or you can make a complaint. So if you want real parity, um, and this is where I didn't quite understand what the Court Martial Appeal Tribunal was saying, that they'd somehow be above the law, the, the parity with civilian judges would be criminal charge or complaint of misconduct. So, again, if you're only talking about that kind of conduct, there's, there's complete parity with how civilian judges are dealt with. Well, what we are suggesting, Justice uh, Kierkegaardis, is that, that within the military context, that's exactly what we have within the military justice system. A judge could be charged with a service offense, or their conduct could be complained of to the Military ju uh, Judicial Inquiry Committee. So why then do you need to have discipline through a summary trial or through a court-martial when the other two routes exist, and those other two routes are the ones that are, that are analogous to the ones that apply to civilian judges? I'm just trying to understand this idea of, you know, it's really crimes. It's not, I understood that it was really for service offenses such as insubordination um, or, um, you know, disrespectful, discourteous conduct. That was why you, you needed to have a disciplinary process through the hierarchy. And that's precisely the point that is raising uh, um, the issue of whether that would be seen to be too, too close a connection between the military judge and the, and the uh, hierarchy. So the, there's a, there are a wide range of service offenses, of course. Uh, so, and uh, perhaps I, I'll explain it this way. Uh, the, those service offenses all constitute part of the code of service discipline. And it's, in our view, not correct to consider that some of those service offenses are disciplinary in nature in a way that puts them apart from other service offenses. The entire body of service offenses, tribal by court-martial, are, and the reason why I keep saying uh, criminal in nature, are chargeable on a criminal standard, are heard by a court in a process that is similar, while not identical to the criminal justice system, on a criminal standard based on criminal laws. So uh, this is why I, I, I say that, because we sometimes use the word discipline, which can be understood in many different ways. In the military justice system, the, the, the whole code of service discipline, uh, tried, uh, service offenses tried under the court-martial system, should be thought of as analogous to the criminal law. No matter whether it's insubordination I'm, I'm now, or assault. I'm now understanding that particular submission, but I still would like to hear the answer of why it isn't sufficient um, for the purposes of um, military, um, for, uh, you know, efficiency, morale, and discipline, why it wouldn't be sufficient to say for military judges, 
they're treated in the same way as civilian judges when it comes to um, well, yes. my discipline defined broadly. Well, my response would be that that's not the, the, the appropriate framework. It, it goes back to a question of uh, ju attempting to justify the system based on necessity rather than looking at the system as it exists and asks, is there a constitutional problem? So, so the question really is not, can, can we civilianize the judges? What is the problem with civilianizing the judges? The question is whether military judges as military officers are a violation of 11D. Wow. And yeah. in answering that question, we say there is no inherent problem and, and nothing has, has changed in that analysis from general. Uh, but in looking at that problem, one must look to the hallmarks of independence and apply uh, the 11D framework to the regime as it exists. Okay, so I'm asking you questions. Uh, I'm not presuming I start the inquiry there. I'm assuming that, you know, we get down to the point where we're actually uh, looking at some of the reasons that have been put forward as being necessary. Um, what was your answer to me, though, about having a court-martial that could, um, uh, that ordered removal a dismissal from the forces and why that doesn't undermine the security of tenure process that's been put in place? Uh, well, they would, what I would say is uh, within the current regime, there's simply no way to put that punishment into effect. The, the Canadian forces could not remove a judge and dismiss them from the Canadian forces because of the statutory protections from that. They would have to first go to the Judicial Inquiry Committee. So. In theory, what would, uh, I believe what would happen is if a court-martial sentenced a military judge to dismissal, the Canadian Armed Forces would then have to refer the matter to a judi the Judicial Inquiry Committee, who would then have to make a, a recommendation for removal. And only after the military judge had been removed from the judiciary would the Canadian Forces be legally in a position to then execute the sentence of dismissal. Meanwhile, of course, they wouldn't be sitting. I highly suspect that that would be the case, yes. So I, although uh, my friend was very careful uh, this morning to uh, refer to one of their concerns with respect to the application of the Code of Service Discipline as, uh, and this morning he, he used the phrase a number of times, executive pressure, uh, I, I would suggest that from the written submissions and the way that this uh, application, uh, appeal has been argued below, that the appellant's concerns is, is less about military judges being subject to military law than it is uh, about a notion that s statutory actors could act improperly and unlawfully to coerce a military judge into issuing favorable decisions uh, to, to the institution. And not only do these arguments, in our view, violate the presumption that statutory actors act in good faith, but those same arguments could be applied to civilian judges vis-a-vis -vis the criminal law. On this point, we would say that the Canadian Civil Liberties Association conflates two equally valid but distinct principles. One is the presumption of good faith of statutory actors, and the other is the principle that you cannot save an unconstitutional law by relying on the good faith exercise of discretion. But this is not about a system in which permits uh, statutory actors to bring unwarranted 
or false allegations of misconduct to a military judge and then rely on the exercise of discretion to remedy that situation. Their argument is really about attacking a legitimate system on the basis that statutory actors might act unlawfully. And if that was a valid criticism, then no statutory regime would be able to withstand scrutiny. That approach also completely ignores the many safeguards in place in the system that would prevent, discourage, or punish such unlawful behavior. They include equivalent charge-laying standards under the criminal law, similar prosecutorial standards for bringing a case before a court-martial, liability to professional standards bodies such as the Military Police Complaints Commission or provincial law societies, and liability under the criminal law or the military law for unlawful conduct. There is simply no real risk that military judges will be subject to such improper and unlawful behaviour. And no reasonably informed observer would consider that military judges were subject to influence by the executive through coercive, unlawful and false allegations of misconduct. In conclusion, we ask this court to confirm its decision in general, a decision that has underpinned military justice jurisprudence for three decades, and to conclude, as the court-martial appeal court did, that an informed person, viewing the matter realistically and practically, and having thought the matter through, could reach no other conclusion than military judges meet the minimum constitutional norms of impartiality and independence as required by Section 11D of the Charter. Can you help me with a little bit of a technical question? Is there any, I know that the provisions of the Act, the way they set out discipline and the fact that officers are subject to the code, um, permit um, discipline through either summary trial now or discipline through court-martial. Is there anything explicit in any of those provisions that require that discipline be undertaken in that way? Uh, so we, we come back to the difficulty of using the term discipline. Uh, Sorry, any service offense infractions, infractions of the uh, code. So, sir, so service offenses uh, are only triable by, by court-martial. Uh, prior to the C-77 amendments, uh, some service offenses were also by, triable by way of summary trial, although there was a provision specifically uh, exempting military judges from trial by summary trial. But service offenses must, uh, the, the only jurisdiction currently to hear service offenses is by way of court-martial. Now, service offenses include many offenses that are criminal law offenses or other offenses under federal acts, and if they are, then of course, in addition to being a service offenses, they are also federal offenses or criminal offenses, and in that regard, those offenses could be heard uh, by a court of criminal jurisdiction. But is there anything in the legislation that requires that it be heard for, with respect to military judges? No. No, not at all. It, the concurrent jurisdiction is equally applicable to offenses uh, alleged to have been committed by military judges. So I say technical because if I were to accept a second ground in terms of remedy, it would just simply be that the provisions exist, but they don't, would, do not apply to uh, military judges because uh, of 11D. Uh, yes, so there, there, there will be several uh, consequences of uh, removing military judges fr from uh, the Code of Service discipline. 
the first would be there are a number of service offenses that are only service offenses that are not criminal offenses or yes. other uh, federal offenses. So those offenses would would no longer uh, apply to military judges. Well, uh, unless they go through the military inquiry committee. Well, not even, e even in that case, no, because the military judges inquiry committee uh, does, does not hear service offenses. It hears allegations and makes recommendations for removal. And it could address those allegations of misconduct, uh, but it cannot make uh, findings of guilt of a service offense. That's not... It's not how that Mr. Kerr, could I ask you just in terms of your response to the uh, this CMAC uh, decision, which leveled two criticism, two basic criticisms at the decisions below? They said first it was not in keeping with precedent, citing Genera, but thereafter McKay, Cawthorn, Stillman, and we've heard that there's Stillman is. There's a little doubt around Stillman, and then some cases uh, where leave to appeal was refused to this to this court. That was one avenue of criticism. And the second avenue of criticism was this idea that the application of the test of whether a reasonably informed person looking at the matter objectively was properly done, and specifically that uh, that the uh, courts below uh, uh, didn't realistically and practically. Um, do the analysis based on context, in particular with regards to the safeguards. Which is the, which would be the better path for this court? I mean, assuming without deciding that this court would dismiss the appeal, which would be the better path for this court to take? It's undoubted and undoubtedly a contextual analysis that considers the, the hallmarks of judicial independence. So, uh, our position is that the question of whether or not military judges as military officers is inherently problematic is, is a red herring. It, it, that's not the proper way to, to look at the question. One must go to uh, the contextual analysis of 11D uh, and look at the regime and, and consider okay. contextually all of the safeguards. So, so in that way, we could avoid some of the thorny debate about whether we're overruling, sidestepping, généreux, and go to what was done, say, in PET, and to do the kind of balancing, look at the hallmarks of independence, look at the, some of the criticisms of it, and, and uh, come down on that basis. Is yes. that what you're suggesting? Okay. Yes. And, and, and presumably, if there it was a problem with the military status of military officers, that problem would emerge in that analysis in, in any event. Uh, but I, I, would, I would just like to come back briefly to, to the issue of whether there's a, a remaining open-ended question in Stillman, because I would submit uh, that there isn't. Uh, the, the paragraph, I believe, is paragraph 86 referred to earlier, simply is an indication, in fact, is no different than Chief Justice Lemaire's uh, uh, reasons in, in general. It simply leaves uh, the fact that the military justice system, the court-martial system, must meet the requirements of 11D, and it remains open. I, I understand, but you, the, point, the bigger point, I guess, is that rather than parsing precedent, the real question is the 11D question, and That's the 11D question is answered on the basis of the hallmarks of independence. That's correct, and, and we have uh, included uh, those, many of those safeguards uh, in, in our um, submissions in our factum at paragraphs 43 to 48, 
And uh, Justice Kazuri, you noted that the, some, and in fact a few others, are uh, discussed in Chief Justice Bell's decision in Edwards at paragraphs 13 to 15, uh, which we've also included in our condensed book at tab four. Uh, but uh, perhaps I, c- I can just cover a few of the key ones uh, one more time. Um, military judges are only liable to perform duties assigned to them by the chief military judge and only to the extent that those duties are not incompatible with their judicial duties. They do not receive evaluation reports. They can only be removed for cause on the recommendation of the military judge's inquiry committee. They have special protections for their security of tenure and financial security. So in this regard, military judges are are not ordinary military officers. While they continue to hold rank and be part of the military community, they are first and foremost judges. That they're members of the community is a strength in our view, not a weakness. There were some answers to those. For example, in, uh, I think, I can't remember, it was in Le Pet or Le Blanc, I'm trying to keep the cases sorted out, but things like, for example, the military judge is not immune from liability under the Code of Civil Service Discipline. The military judge presiding a general court-martial is often of a lower rank than the members of the panel and thus may appear to be beholden to them. The, the, these are concerns. In other words, all I'm saying is, ce n'est pas une lettre à la poste. It's not a slam dunk. There's a balancing that goes on here. We, in the CMAC decision, we get some of that, but we don't get the full flavor of it, I don't think. Uh, I think the court's going to have to do a bit of work there. I, yes. Um, what I would say is that those decisions at the trial were all uh, based on, on a, a premise uh, that was the premise that was put in front of the court martial appeal court, which is the reasons why the focus is perhaps uh, narrower in, in the, in the court martial appeal court decision. And that premise was from it, the starting point that military judges are not subject to the code of service discipline. And to a certain degree, uh, a, a false view that uh, the military judges inquiry committee performed a function greater than it did. And Chief Justice Bell dispels both of those notions in that decision. Calling the cases wrong, there are a lot of cases, but I thought the premise was not that they were not subject to the code of military discipline, but that the only way, uh, the only process uh, to deal with um, discipline under the code was either through the courts or through the Military Justice Inquiry Committee while they held office so that they remained subject to the code, but there were these two routes while they held office, and only after they no longer held office could they be subject to um, discipline for the code. So I think there's a difference between saying they're not subject to it and saying how they can be disciplined for any contravention of the code. So I I think the difficulty is that the, the, the arguments and rationale of the military judges themselves over the history of many cases uh, shifts. 
and, and by the end of those decisions, you see three very different approaches from three different military judges that fall along a spectrum. Uh, uh, but you're right, there are a number of decisions written uh, in particular by uh, military judge uh, Pelche that suggests they're not subject to the code while they sit, but that right. if a military judicial yeah. inquiry committee removed them from office, then and only then could uh, the institution consider holding them to account for code of service discipline violations that potentially occurred while they but were sitting. apart seen. from that wrinkle, I thought all of the judges agreed with the interpretation that the military, um, the, I keep getting the acronyms wrong, the Military Justice Inquiry Committee route was the code applied, but you had to go through that route. No, they were not even in agreement on that. At least one military judge ruled that they could be held subject to the code of service Hers discipline. was not before us, right? Uh, well, they are, all of them to a, uh, to, to, a, to a degree are before because they inform each other. I, for instance, PET, which has been, was the, the, the case in which this issue was raised first and is an important decision to understand uh, uh, what, what the military judge's concerns were, is also not one of the appellants before, before this case. But it's impossible to understand the, the development of the arguments at the trial level without considering all of these cases, whether they're an appellant or, or not. It, no, I wasn't going to mention anything unless you'd otherwise finished your arguments. Uh, yes, I am, Justice Rowe. Thank you. Well, then, en passant, an early instance of uh, military justice. In Henry V, the king had ordered there be no looting after the Battle of Azincourt, and Bardolph was found having taken something from a church. He was presented to the king, who confirmed that his friend Bardolph be hanged. Thank you very much. Any reply? Yes. We'll be brief. Um, so I just want to uh, point out that uh, the complicated discussions about the uh, security of tenure are definitely an optical, reasonable optical problem and the uncertainty surrounding what happens when a military judge is uh, tried by court-martial and his security of tenure or threats to it is sufficient to raise a reasonable apprehension of bias in and of itself. Uh, and it doesn't take uh, dismissal, can be reduction in rank. It could be all kinds of other uh, types of threats that can give a chilling effect uh, that will uh, be some kind of pressure uh, from the executive or the chain of command on the, on the military uh, judge. I, I want to answer the questions of uh, uh, Justice Jamal and Justice Rowe about the broad consequences uh, about, uh, of this, the potential broad consequences of this decision that could uh, trickle down to uh, military defense counsel, military prosecution. This is not before this court, but more importantly, this is not a concern. The standard is different. The judicial independence standard is not the same. It is very much a strict standard for judicial independence. So this is not a concern. Uh, in Genereux, my, uh, I want to say the standard applied in Genereux, as uh, um, Justice Cassier mentioned, is a, is a flexible standard. This is, in, this is no longer acceptable in today's modern military criminal 
justice system. This is no longer acceptable for a reasonable apprehension of bias test. This is not a policy issue. It's an 11D, 11D issue. Uh, so much so that Chief Justice Lamar himself, on his own volition, addressed it. So I know that my friend would like this court to sidestep this issue, this preliminary issue, but it is part of the Geneva analysis, and it is a fundamental issue that goes directly to reasonable apprehension of bias. And I won't have time to read all that, but there is, uh, he says, in my opinion, a reasonable person might well consider that the military status of military members would affect its approach to the matters that come before its decision. It is only then that he says that's not enough for a Section D violation. But what's important is why. And I ask this course to really ask, why is that enough? And are those facts still true today? But Maître Letourneau, would it not be possible, as a question, to say flexible doesn't necessarily mean lower, a lower standard? A flexible standard is one that's contextual. It takes into account the fact that uh, a military judiciary um, has concerns and a, a field of vision that's not identical to that of a, uh, une cour de droit commun. Avec respect, uh, no. I think uh, in a criminal system, nothing less than a, a, a healthy, uh, robust standard will satisfy public confidence. This is a public confidence issue. And that's why this is a constitutional issue, and not only it's an act. It's 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 really that the members, as Fish reports, are losing confidence in the system, and so it is important. And Larbeau says that exterior contribution from the exterior can enhance public confidence in the system. What better than a civilian judge uh, to do that? Uh, I have one minute left. Um, uh, I want to emphasize the fact that uh, at tab 10 of the condensed book, this is an admission by the Minister of National Defense who is the respondent. So this is not a controversial matter. This is at paragraph 50. There exists an abundance of evidence dealing with the utility of engaging, engaging civilian judges in the military justice system. This admission totally undermines the rationale, the premise of Genève. It totally undermines it. Genève is built on the, on the opposite premise. And so I invite this court to apply Genève with the updated facts and, and apply the reasonable observer test with a robust standard. Uh, and, and just to reassure, uh, okay. Serment d'office, le serment d'office, c'est pas suffisant, euh, Monsieur le juge Cassirère. Euh, c'est pas réaliste que tous les accusés, les, les juges ne vont pas se récuser, ils devraient se récuser dans tous les cas à cause de la pression. Dans tous les cas, ils sont sujets à un code de discipline militaire, que ce soit effectivement arrivé ou non, la pression est là. Et dans tous les cas, ils sont en conflit d'intérêt avec l'organisation même qui poursuit les accusés devant eux. Thanks for listening to Canada's Court, presented by the Criminal Lawyers Association, a 
full webcast version of the oral argument featured in today's episode can be viewed from the Supreme Court of Canada website at scc-csc.ca or obtained from the court directly. Other episodes are available on all major podcast platforms or by visiting podcast.criminallawyers.ca. The Supreme Court of Canada is not affiliated with this podcast and did not produce or participate in its creation.